0: Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church Essentials Podcast with your host, Senior Pastor John Sauer. This week, Pastor John will walk us through Part 2 of the Essential Doctrine of the Trinity. Thanks for joining us today. The Nicene Creed states, We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That is the text of the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed is the words that give us the doctrine of the Trinity. And it's that creed that we will be looking at today and the history behind that creed that we will be looking at today. So welcome to Stonebridge Essentials. I'm Pastor John, the senior pastor of Stonebridge Community Church. Last week, I gave you a standard narrative of the Nicene Creed and its development. It's a story where Arius is a primary villain, and a man named Athanasius is the hero, And at the Council of Nicaea, which is convened in the 320s, Athanasius denounces Arius, defeats him, and Arius is exiled. And from that point on, we have the Nicene Creed, which guides the church in its discussions about the Trinity, and there's no more tension anymore, and the church moves on to a new controversy. That's the standard narrative, where Athanasius is portrayed as this hero, and almost at times as a saint. The problem with it is it's not really accurate. And the actual history behind the Nicene Creed is both much more messy than that narrative and much more interesting than that narrative. And there's all sorts of flawed human beings. So let me focus on the first two major personalities in that narrative, and then I'll introduce a third personality as well. But the first personality of that narrative is Arius. And his depiction in the narrative is is fairly accurate, actually. Arius was going around teaching that Jesus was not of the same essence as God. That Jesus was created. That Jesus was not one being with the Father, but was a created being. The firstborn of creation the, the preeminent creation, but nonetheless a creation. Arius did go around teaching that. And the problem with Arius's teaching is that it makes scripture incoherent. And that's actually the issue with heresies. There's been a lot of talk about how heresies, it's just power games. And one group gets into power, so they declare another group heretical while that may be going on and that does happen from time to time, over the history of the church, heresies are actually shown to make scripture not make sense. That's one of the problems with them. And with Arius's heresies, with his beliefs, it makes all sorts of passages in the Gospel of John not make sense anymore. Or Matthew, Mark, and Luke it makes them incoherent. It makes Revelation incoherent. It makes parts of the Apostle Paul, incoherent. The problem with Arius' depiction of Jesus as being created is that it makes Scripture completely fall apart and become incoherent. So that's what numerous bishops were responding to with Arius, is that this teaching would unravel the faith. So... The council at Nicaea, it is called, because of Arius. Now, the next personality that we're going to discuss is Athanasius. Now, in that standard narrative, it's been told as though Athanasius is the hero that comes riding in denouncing Arius. That's not really accurate at all. And a lot of that has to do with the way Athanasius portrays himself um, later on. It's about... 10 years, 15 years after the council at Nicaea that Athanasius really becomes involved in the fight. And he's arguing not really against Arius, but Athanasius is arguing against people he calls Arians. He does this political tactic, this polemical tool of taking somebody who is wildly unpopular, Arius, and associating somebody more popular, with him. So Athanasius' actual opponents, they're, they're not fully Arians, but he calls them that. And Athanasius himself, he gets into a bit of trouble. He ends up being exiled for a while. And he's not the great hero that he portrays himself out to be. So, Athanasius does make contributions. I don't want to completely belittle everything he did, but he's not the central hero in this story. The other thing, too, with the standard narrative is this idea that after the council at Nicaea, this was all settled, and nobody debated this anymore. But in reality, the whole Nicene Creed's formulation is really from about 325 to 380, And Athanasius just plays a a bit of a role there about 10 years afterwards. But somebody in this early stage that gets overlooked fairly regularly is a man named Alexander. Alexander is the one who initially rebuts Arius. And Alexander is Arius's bishop. And Athanasius was Alexander's secretary. Alexander is the one who gives us what will become the theology behind the Nicene Creed, or at least the beginnings of it. Alexander asserts that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, that Jesus is of the same essence of God the Father. And Alexander is the one who really gives us the beginnings of the theology of the Nicene Creed. Athanasius does pick up some ideas from Alexander. He changes them here and there, but it's really Alexander that begins the opposition to Arius. The other thing that is really interesting about the Nicene Creed and its development is the role of emperors. So with the council at Nicaea, it wasn't as though these bishops all came together of their own accord just to get on the same page together it was actually that the Emperor Constantine called this council. Constantine was the Roman Emperor who had this vision, we're told, of a Christian symbol in the sky. And then he has this symbol painted on the shields of his soldiers. And then they go out and they wage war against somebody else who's trying to control the Roman Empire. And Constantine's forces win this battle. And from that point on, The Roman Empire is a Christian empire. That's also another one of those standard narratives that isn't entirely accurate. Constantine, he didn't actually become a Christian until at earliest on his deathbed. He wasn't baptized, we're told, until he was on his deathbed. And Constantine also really kind of used Christianity to try to create stability in the Roman Empire. This is a common tactic of all sorts of different leaders. They use religion. They use the cultural symbols of religion to try to create unity within the empire. And Constantine had a very fractured, divided empire that he conquered and took over. He needed to pull it together. So he wanted to use this rapidly spreading Christian faith in order to do so. So Constantine called the council at Nicaea because he wanted these Christians to stop arguing with each other so that they could help unify his empire. That was really the agenda. And when Arius went into the council of Nicaea, he didn't really have a chance. He was going to be denounced. His ideas were, they did not have the majority support that he hoped for. Um, And Constantine wanted resolution to this. So, That's another piece of the whole standard narrative that usually gets left out. Now, with the standard narrative as well, the idea that after the council at Nicaea, everything is smooth, everything is fine when it comes to the Trinity and that the the Nicene Creed becomes enshrined in the church's teachings, that's not what happened at all either. This debate, it, it raged on. Now, if Arius had a problem in his theology, it was that he drew too strong of a distinction between Jesus and God the Father. Arius drew a very thick line between those two and put God the Father on one side, the divine side, and Jesus on the other side, the created side. One of the Accusations against the Nicene Creed, one of the concerns that people had with the Nicene Creed afterwards was that it was an overreaction to Arius's belief. People are concerned about the Nicene Creed because they say that it completely erased that line of distinction between Jesus and God the Father, and they become concerned that the Nicene Creed is an example of the heresy that's been called modalism. What modalism is, is the belief that Jesus was just kind of a mask that God was wearing, that Jesus wasn't actually a human in any real sense of the term, but that Jesus was just a a part of God, God putting on a different mask, and there's no distinction between the two. Remember, the doctrine of the Trinity is that there are three persons in the Trinity who are of one substance, so there is distinction there between the persons. But for about 20 years or so, Christians are concerned about the Nicene Creed and this formulation of the doctrine of the Trinity because they say that it actually destroys the Trinity, that really there's just one God who puts on different masks. Sometimes the mask is Jesus. Sometimes the mask is Holy Spirit. Sometimes the mask is God the Father. And that by doing so, now scripture doesn't make any sense. That God is essentially just playing a prank on everybody. And when Jesus talks about how there's distinctions between the Father and the Son, it would make Jesus not truthful. So there's hesitation around the Nicene Creed. Because there's a desire to uphold the Trinity. So fast forward now to about 350 or so. And in the 350s, another emperor comes to power. And this emperor doesn't really like the Nicene Creed. So all of those people who under Constantine had been gaining momentum, all those bishops who had been pushing this this Nicene theology, they're now on the outs. And some of Athanasius' opponents become a little more prominent now. And this emperor basically throws out the Nicene Creed. Fast forward about, I don't know, 10 years, and you then have the reverse happening again. A new emperor comes into power, and this new emperor likes the Nicene Creed. This new emperor thinks that this could get going, that the Nicene Creed could be what unites the empire and begins having Christians discuss the Nicene Creed all over again. From about 360 to 380, that's when we see the Nicene Creed that we were given at Nicaea become revised, become refined. And then at 380, I think 381 actually, there's another council. And it's there that we get the form of the Nicene Creed that we have. This is messy history. We have to remember that doctrine... It doesn't just come down from heaven. Doctrine is not the inspired word of God. Doctrine is humans responding to the witness of God and scripture. But once we accept that, once we stop teaching our treating our doctrines as though they are scripture, once we accept them for what they are, they become really useful tools to help us understand scripture. And I think we can look past the history behind the Nicene Creed to recognize that each step along the way, legitimate concerns were raised about the theology in this document. And each step along the way, However, those concerns were raised, whether it was from an emperor trying to gain control or from bishops trying to secure their place in history, whatever the motivations were, legitimate concerns were raised and addressed. So that by the time we get the actual Nicene Creed that we have in 381, this is a thoroughly vetted document. This is a thoroughly debated document. And it's one that has been deemed to be helpful in talking about God. I find comfort in that. These kinds of public documents that are out there in the world that don't have one author, but multiple people have been part of drafting them. And multiple people have been part of trying to craft them and debating them. That, to me, means that this has been very thought through, and it has stood the tests. And the fact that from 381 until now, the Nicene Creed has been used in the church to teach, to educate, and to guide us in how we talk about God, that makes me trust the Nicene Creed a lot more. What it also helps me to do, though, is to recognize that this document has a purpose. The Nicene Creed, it wasn't crafted to answer all questions for all time. It wasn't crafted to explain the Trinity. What it does is it gives us language so that we can talk about God as accurately as possible. So, When we look to these creeds, when we respond to these creeds, we have to remember that they were crafted for that purpose, to help us talk about God, but then also to help us make some sort of sense of what we see in Scripture. But the Nicene Creed, the doctrine of the Trinity, it doesn't make sense of everything, And it's not trying to do that. It's just trying to help us understand the witness of Scripture. But the truth of God, the truth of God's being, there's no way it can all make sense in this world and in our understanding. In a flawed creation, a perfect God isn't going to make perfect sense to us. So we have to make sure we take the creed as what it it is. It's an attempt from our forebears to work out some of these questions for us and to give us language so that we can witness to the world about the God that's revealed in Scripture and to help us see basically some paths that we should and shouldn't travel down. It helps us to understand that if you go down the path that Arius went down, well, you're not going to make sense of wide portions of Scripture. You're going to make Scripture incoherent if you go down that path. And if you go down the path of modalism, you're going to, again, turn Jesus into more of a trickster than the divine God revealed in human form. So that, I think is the benefit of the creeds. And yes, the history is messy. There are politics involved. There are very human personalities involved. But the actual product that is the result of all this, while I don't think it's the product of the Holy Spirit's work in the same way as Scripture is, I think the Holy Spirit was working through this process, working through these emperors and these bishops and these flawed personalities with their flawed understandings, and working to give us, hundreds of years later, a way to talk about God well. So take the Nicene Creed as it is, on its terms, for what it is, which is really a way to help us talk about the witness of the scriptures. Next week, we're going to be focusing on a topic that I am so fascinated by. We're going to be focusing on the various heresies that have arisen from the Trinity. We talked about some of them today. We talked about modalism a little bit. We also talked about Arianism. But there's so many others that have propped up throughout history. And the point of that is going to be to try to look at the ways that people have not talked about the Trinity well, so that when we see the Trinity talked about well, it becomes more clear to us. So we're going to look at the negative examples first, so that when the positive example is presented to us in two weeks, we can see it a bit more clearly. So thank you all for tuning in. If you are very interested in this history, I mean, I did this all in very broad strokes, but if you're interested in this history and you want more, I would encourage you to go pick up a book called Nicaea and its Legacy by historian Lewis Ayers. It is a very thick book. It is a thick book of history. I loved it. So if you want to dive deep into this, I would recommend that book to you. God bless you all and look forward to talking with you next week.